Nancy. <laughs> I understand she had a meeting with Elsie Hastings and then was com- uh, composing fruit baskets to Steny Hoyer and John Murtha, a- along with notes, one of which says, I'm sorry, and the other of which says, I'm really sorry. Uh, I promised uh, Leonard and Jean and, and Dean Reuter that I would give a serious introduction to the secretary, although when he heard I was introducing him, he did uh, raise the threat level to orange. <laughs> secretary Chertoff proves that a very smart Jewish boy can grow up to be a successful lawyer. He uh, overcame a number of obstacles in his career. It got off to a very shaky start. He attended Harvard College and then Harvard Law School. And then he clerked for Justice Brennan. So you can see, you know, this was really going badly at the beginning. But the secretary was able to turn this around. He had a very successful private practice at Latham and Watkins, and then a career in uh, public service. He was a federal prosecutor. He was a U.S. attorney. He was the special counsel to the Senate Whitewater Committee, endearing him to one particular senator. He was the Assistant Attorney General of the United States for the Criminal Division, and then he was appointed as a circuit judge to the United States Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit, uh, thereby covering not only the Virgin Islands, uh, but also Trenton, Camden, and Newark. When the president was looking for someone to take over the Department of Homeland Security, he turned, uh, as he had on other occasions, to Michael Chertoff, putting him in charge of terrorism, nuclear threats, immigration, border control, and I think when you were appointed, no one mentioned hurricanes at the time. But I I recall vividly the pictures of uh, the secretary when he was appointed. He had a full head of uh, dark hair. He was uh, confirmed by 98 to nothing. Uh, Senator Clinton has asked for a recount, but uh, I I think he has done a spectacular job. I'm delighted that he's here with us. Please welcome Secretary Michael Chertoff. Ron, thank you very much. Um, A lot of lawyers in this room. Now, I don't usually address lawyers' groups anymore because one of the benefits of my current position is it's the first job I've had since I graduated from law school in which I wasn't acting in the capacity of being a lawyer. And I'll tell you, it's wonderful. (laughs) I get to – every time there's a problem, I say, go go ask the lawyers about that. But I am delighted to speak to this group um, because I think the premise of the Federalist Society is that ideas – matter in the world of the law, and that our views of the role of the courts and our philosophy of law actually has a real-world impact on the way we organize our lives and conduct our daily affairs. Now, when I was in school, in law school, and I graduated in 1978, I don't think the society had yet been formed. And when I was in school during the period from 75 to 78, we were still in the, uh, I would say, full flush of the Warren Court years when the phrase judicial activism was viewed as a term of admiration. And for those of you who are younger, it may be a little hard to uh, imagine what it was like to be in an environment in which there were only very few of us 
who are willing to talk about things like judicial restraint or suggest that judges couldn't solve every single problem, and, and to be facing really a majority that looked at us like we were demented. Uh, actually, one of those who was a year behind me, but I think probably had as a very similar experience, was, was John Roberts, now the Chief Justice. There were very few people, frankly, who in my era were in a position to argue seriously for what Chief Justice Roberts has, I think, very accurately described as judicial modesty. Now, first let me tell you what, what I mean or what I think the phrase judicial modesty means. I think it means things like deferring to the political branches that represent the will of the people. I think it means cautiousness in the use of judicial remedies and a, and a kind of a humble recognition of the fact that sometimes there can be unintended consequences. I think it means mindfulness of the limits of judicial uh, competence. You know, judges are, by and large, pretty smart. When I was a judge, my colleagues were pretty smart, but they're not necessarily great at everything, and they don't necessarily understand everything. And a kind of a a modesty in understanding your own competence is, to me, a significant element of the right way a judge ought to behave. And, of course, a critical element of judicial modesty is a rigorous observance of the self-limiting elements of of jurisdiction. You have to be particularly careful about policing yourself to make sure you don't overstep because judges, after all, are generally given the last word about jurisdiction. So what I think is really uh, fascinating about the society is that by forming the Federalist Society, Uh, The visionaries who created the organization established a a forum in which these ideas of judicial modesty could be openly discussed in a collegial environment. Essentially, they created a counterweight to the prevailing academic orthodoxy of the 60s and 70s, and that was a very positive thing. Now, of course, some people now have taken uh, up the idea that really the Federalist Society is kind of like the modern-day da Vinci conspiracy a secret society that controls all the legal jobs and all the legal decision-making in the administration. And, of course, we know that is nonsense. But what the society did was it did create a form in which one could challenge ideas that had previously been accepted as the conventional wisdom. Now, I'm not going to say that that means that the philosophy of judicial modesty or similar conservative philosophies now dominate the legal landscape. Far from it. Many people still believe, whether they be in academia or on the courts or practicing law, many still believe that the purpose of the courts is to pursue a vision of the good life of social justice as conceived by legal thinkers and judges. But now, in large part because of the work that the society and others have done, the claim for judicial modesty is sufficiently well established that everybody understands, even the critics of that claim, that they have to take it seriously and they have to address it. Judges and lawyers who take an activist approach realize that they have to respond to the critique of that activism. Conservatism and judicial modesty have now become forces to be reckoned with in the intellectual discourse of the law here in the United States. In short, you've leveled the playing field, and that has been a very good thing. So now your work is not done, because I'm going to ask you to confront a new challenge, and that is the rise of an increasingly activist, left-wing, and even elitist philosophy of law that is flourishing not in the United States, but in foreign courts and in various international courts and bodies. For decades, the judges, the lawyers, and the academics who provide the intellectual firepower 
in the development of international law and transnational law have increasingly advocated for a broad vision of legal activism that exceeds even the kind of legal activism we saw discussed in the academy here in the United States in the 60s. So now you're scratching your head and you're asking yourself, why does the Secretary of Homeland Security care about this? Well, in my domain, much of what I do actually intertwines with what happens overseas. And what happens in the world of international law and transnational law increasingly has an impact on my ability to do my job and the ability of the people who work in my department to do their jobs. And I'll give you a recent example. Uh, Some of you may have followed in the press that there was a difference of opinion between the European Union and the United States about the use of something called passenger name record data, which is basic information that you get when you buy a ticket or you work through a travel agent as part of the process of planning your trip to coming to the United States. There is great value to us in the ability to get access to that information as part of the process of our determining who we are going to allow to enter the United States. That, of course, is a fundamental core power of any sovereign. You get to decide who you're going to admit and who you're going to reject. And it turns out that this very modest amount of information, like your address and your credit card and your telephone number, are very useful for us in identifying whether people seeking to come into the country have connections to terrorists that at a minimum suggest we ought to put them into secondary before we grant them admission. And this strikes me as eminently reasonable, and I can tell you it is a critical tool in protecting this country. But privacy advocates, particularly in the European Parliament, believe that because that information is collected in, among other places, Europe, they should determine how we use that information in deciding who is going to be allowed into our country. And this led to a very substantial uh, debate. Fortunately, we resolved it with an agreement which I think does uh, address the principal concerns that we have. But it focused my attention on how much of my ability to do my job in leading a department that protects the American people depends upon constraints that others want to put upon us based on their conception of either international law or transnational law. So I've come to see in a very dramatic way this has a real-world impact on the fundamental issues about how we protect ourselves. Of course, it turns out that this is not a new issue. If you go back in 1986, there was a case in the International Court of Justice called Nicaragua v. the United States, where there was a challenge to the United States policy of supporting the Contras. And the court there was confronted by a jurisdictional argument which the United States raised. The argument was that based on the various treaties which were in force, which meant things that we and other countries had agreed to, the court didn't really have jurisdiction of the case because all the relevant parties were not participating. But the court brushed that jurisdictional argument aside and ruled against the United States on the ground that even if the treaties did not permit this to be addressed in that particular forum, there was customary law that allowed the court to act even though the treaties would have forbidden action in that case. And that's a fairly significant and dramatic decision, at least in my view. In 1998, the International Court of Justice again confronted the United States in Breard versus Gilmore. That involved a Paraguayan who had not been uh, 
given access to his consul, I think because, frankly, nobody knew he was Paraguayan, in Virginia, had worked his way up and down the state system in Virginia after he was convicted and sentenced to death, was working his way up the federal system. And literally at the 11th hour of his execution, Paraguay went into the International Court of Justice and argued to have that court uh, order the United States not to complete the uh, sentence that had been imposed by a duly constituted Virginia state court. Ultimately, it went up to the U.S. Supreme Court, and the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that because the court, um, the plaintiff, Breard, had not exhausted or raised these issues, at any point in the, in the state court proceedings, he had waived his rights. There was a procedural bar under a 1986 federal statute that basically said you've got to raise your claims in accordance with state law or you've waived them. And, and therefore, the execution went ahead. But international lawyers and the international courts were outraged that we gave greater weight to a federal statute that came after the treaty in question rather than deferring to an international court. And, of course, it's not only been the United States that has felt the vigor of this, what I would call, very activist kind of international adjudication. In 2004, the International Court of Justice weighed into a thicket Uh, that is probably one of the most difficult of all in the area of international relations, and that has to do with uh, Israel and its activities in the uh, West Bank uh, of the Jordan River. There, in a case entitled Legal Consequences of Construction of a Wall in the Occupied Palestinian Territory, the ICJ issued a very broad advisory opinion concluding that the construction of a wall that was specifically designed to keep suicide bombers out of Israel, where they were blowing up people on a regular basis, violated international law, had to be dismantled, and reparations had to be made because the wall was put up. Part of that reasoning process was the ICJ concluding that Israel could not use the threat of terrorist attacks emanating from the Palestinian territories to justify the wall because the attacks were not attributed to a state. In other words, using what I would consider a very hyper-technical reading, the court was relatively dismissive of what most of us would regard as a very compelling fundamental attribute of state sovereignty, the right to protect your citizens from being killed by people coming in from outside. And I think this sequence of decisions shows an increasing tendency to look to rather generally described and often ambiguous, quote, universal norms to trump domestic prerogatives that are very much at the core of what it means to live up to your responsibility as a sovereign state. Now, who interprets these laws? Of course, to the extent we're dealing with the text of treaties, if this country is party to a treaty, we have consented to it if it's been ratified by the Senate. And it's fair that we live up to the letter of the agreement we have signed. But often the letter of the agreement is not what controls. It is, in fact, what we have not agreed to that people seek to impose upon us. And, of course, this begins with the judges and justices of various international courts, not, of course, appointed by or ratified by our uh, legal uh, or political process, that looks to customary international law that is often considered to be described by what they say are the opinions of international law experts. That basically means professors. Now, I'm, I'm sure it's a, uh, an academic fantasy to imagine a world in which the writings of professors actually define the content of the law 
rather than what Congress passes or uh, is agreed upon. Uh, that's typically not, at least in my experience, the way we make law in this country. But it is quite seriously um, the view taken by some that international law can be discovered in the writings of academics and others who are experts, often self-styled experts. And I think Congress itself has recognized that this is um, this tendency to have a very expansive and activist view of customary international law requires that we be very cautious in this country about how we address the issue. Several times, for example, the Senate has expressly put reservations into its approval of treaties to make sure that the treaties are interpreted and applied domestically in a limited fashion, or even more importantly, in in a way that's consistent with our own fundamental constitutional requirements. And yet again, the experts and, and sometimes the foreign adjudicators simply view those limitations as um, minor impediments to insistence that we accept the full measure of the treaty as ratified by others, or perhaps is not ratified by anybody, but as uh, having its source in that vague and fertile uh, turf of customary international law. And of course, when one looks to, to the sources of this international law, one can hardly for example, failed to note the composition of the UN Human Rights Committee and other UN organs, uh, which often take some of their uh, impetus for their view of international law from countries like Cuba and Zimbabwe, which are not notable upholders of the rule of law in their own countries. And the increasing tendency of the UN and similar bodies to enter into the domestic arena with aggressive views of international law that would, would require us, for example, to second-guess the Patriot Act or to accord illegal immigrants in the United States equal rights with those who are here illegally. But perhaps even more urgently in the current arena, we see the impact of international and transnational law on our struggle to defeat an enemy that wants to bring war to our shores and successfully did so on 9-11. I've talked about the PNR passenger name record issue we had with Europe, in which some in the European Parliament argued that the fact that the information was derived from Europeans coming to the U.S. meant that we should be forced in the United States to let Europe supervise and set the terms of how we make use of that information. A press report I saw today suggested a similar measure by some European privacy advocates to limit the way in which financial information that we gather can be used in our country because at some point that information may have passed through European hands. So how we deal with this issue of international law is increasingly impacting how we defend ourselves and how we conduct our domestic affairs. So what's the source of all this? Well, the source of it, I think, has to do with what I said at the very beginning of the speech. It's the fact that the concept of judicial modesty, which at least has one respect in this country, if not perhaps, uh, you know, completely uh, unanimous agreement, is, I think, pretty much absent in those uh, areas where people develop and discuss international law. And if you look at the cases I've talked about, it illustrates the point very well. A, criti a critical element of judicial modesty is deferring to the political and democratic branches, to those who govern with the consent of the people. And even when we talk about overriding those with the Constitution, it's because our Constitution is a document which reflects the consent of the people. But in the Nicaragua case, the ICE International Court of Justice precisely rejected consent 
by pushing to one side the carefully crafted treaty limitations about who should be present in the court before the court could rule, and then simply going ahead and reaching for customary law. And recently, uh, a leading practitioner in the area of international human rights law was quite specific in saying that when the U.S. refuses to ratify a treaty, it doesn't matter because we may still be bound by customary international law. Or in the Breard case, where the international law community gave short shrift to Congress's mandate that we respect the procedural rules and regulations of the state courts. In other words, a critical element of federalism reflected not only in our Constitution, but in a specific act of Congress was viewed as an impediment to be brushed aside in the service of a more general and, frankly, somewhat vaguer set of international norms. So what we, what we see here is a vision of international law that, if taken aggressively, would literally strike at the heart of some of our basic fundamental principles. Separation of power, respect for the Senate's ability to ratify treaties and the Senate's ability to reject treaties, uh, and respect for federalism and the importance of letting the state courts set their own rules to govern what they do. So where's all this leading? Well, I'm going to quote from the same international human rights lawyer who gives us his vision of where we're going with international law. He says in a recent book called Lawless World, to claim that states are as sovereign today as they were 50 years ago is to ignore reality. The extent of interdependence caused by the avalanche of international laws means that states are constrained by international obligations over an increasingly wide range of actions. And the rules, once adopted, take on a logic and a life of their own. They do not stay stay within the neat boundaries that states thought they were creating when they were negotiated. Now, I'm quite sure that is meant to be a happy statement of the uh, the way we're operating now. But I actually view it as a chilling vision of where we could go given the current developments in international and transnational law. So what do we do about it? Well, you know, traditionally we have tended to act in a manner that I would call defensive. For example, after the Nicaragua case, the U.S. government withdrew jurisdiction over the matter, and that ended the legal power of the uh, international court, such as it was, to compel a result. In some of the more extravagant assertions by some of the UN human rights organs, we've simply accepted the statement as a kind of uh, hortatory request, and we haven't done anything further with it. And of course, those of you who follow the developments with the International Criminal Court know that we have sought to enter agreements with other countries to avoid the application of that court's rules against our own citizens when we haven't, uh, in fact, ratified or agreed to that treaty. But while these defensive means may be necessary, they are not, in my view, a sufficient approach to this increasing challenge to our ability to conduct our domestic affairs. First of all, the fact is, whether we like it or not, international law is increasingly entering our domestic domain. The Supreme Court has begun to bring it in through cases like Hamdan and Alvarez Machain, which allowed a very small opening, but still an opening in the door under the Alien Tort Claims Act to international human rights law being a source of direct causes of action here in the United States. 
through various European and other kinds of uh, domestic protection rules. They're trying, uh, there's an increasing effort to control our use of information in our own country to determine who comes in from outside. And of course, international law has been used as a rhetorical weapon against us. We are constantly portrayed as being on the, on the losing end and, and the um, negative end of international law developments. And I also have to say, in fairness, there are some positive things that a properly constructed and implemented international law can do not only for the whole world but for us as well. Common standards on aviation and maritime security are a win-win for us and for our allies overseas. There is a positive dimension to international law if we can recapture it from those elements that seem to make it into a, a kind of activism on steroids. So my bottom line is this. The problem is not the idea of international law, but it is an international law that's been captured by a very activist, extremist legal philosophy. But it doesn't have to be that way. And so my challenge to you is to take overseas the same kind of intellectual vigor and intellectual uh, argument that you brought into the United States, into, ac into academia in the United States in the 70s, and that was quite successful over a period of time in changing the playing field, leveling it out so that there was another voice heard for judicial modesty. I'm confident it's not going to happen in a week or a month or a year, but that if you take some of the ideas you've developed here and you take them overseas and you take them to academia and you take them into the legal uh, philosophical salons in Europe, you will eventually start to persuade because the merit of these ideas, I think, is, is, is strong and what's wanted is the energy and the initiative and the courage to take them to a place where until now they have not been very seriously heard. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. The Secretary has graciously agreed to take a, a couple of questions. I think we have time for one or two. If uh, people who have questions want to come to the microphone, uh, we will take them. Uh, otherwise, we'll begin calling on you randomly. <laughs> yeah, and, and if you'd say who you are, yes. My question concerns no-fly lists. How do you get on a list? How do you get off a list? And why not give the American citizen his day in court to contest uh, the proposed action of your department? Well, if you want to get on the list, I think I probably could put you on. <laughs> uh, the no-fly list, uh, the process without getting to classified material basically involves a determination that there's intelligence about someone being a threat to aviation. And uh, based on that determination, we judge uh, through an interagency process whether someone ought to be put on the no-fly list. And the list is then uh, transmitted to the airlines and winds up then being a basis to deny people. They're actually legally obliged to deny people the opportunity to fly. Uh, people can, you know, uh, if they have an issue with it, they can raise an issue with it. Uh, but we don't conduct court hearings on this. We don't because, first of all, almost all the information is classified. Second, because I'm quite sure that the 19 hijackers, uh, if, if we could replay history, would have contested being on a no-fly list. Uh, and we're not about to let them do that. And third, because we would be inundated with uh, proceedings. This is the kind of measure you have to undertake if you're going to protect airlines from being blown up. Now, we do 
sometimes revisit these things. And if we have a, a basis to believe, for example, that a mistake has been made, we've taken people off the list. Um, and sometimes when people have refused, uh, been refused boarding, they will raise the issue, they'll write in, or they'll have somebody contact us, and we will consider if they've got some reason to believe that they um, shouldn't be on the list. I should separate that from mistakes in identity. Those we always do correct. And the problem often arises with mistakes in identity that we actually have been prohibited from gathering uh, some limited additional information uh, that would actually allow us to separate people who have the same name uh, from people that are really a danger. So I want to be clear that when we have mistakes, we correct those uh, and we tell the airlines that they ought to be corrected. But people who are, when we actually have identified a person and it's the right person and we put them on the list, based on our careful consideration of intelligence, it's not a subject for litigation. Thank you very much, Mr. Secretary. I think we're unfortunately going to have to cut off the questions because we have a couple of security announcements. We have to clear the room since the vice president is coming. And uh, all of you, when you leave the room, go to your left. This is the first time you'll hear that at a Federalist program. (laughs) And go past the coat check. There will be magnetometers set up. We will have the area closed from 12 to 1. Those who are going to the professional responsibility program, you will be locked in from 12 to 1.30. Uh, We had that idea as a way of keeping people in attendance there, but the security folks also said we would not be releasing people from that room till 1.30. This room will be open again at 3.30 and will close at 4.40. So those of you who want to hear the vice president will need to be here by 4.40. Again, thank you very much, Mr. Secretary. Thank you. Sorry, I have to cut off. No,